0: For me, that's always gonna be about more than just making shit cheaper. Anybody can do that and it's not impressive, right? If you're a retailer that doesn't, you don't care. I ran bars and nightclubs and some hospitality stuff for a long time. And I learned that the most expensive thing on your shelf is never what you paid the most for. It's what you can't get rid of. If it's still sitting there, I don't care if you got it for a bargain, it drives you crazy, right? You go to your store, there's something in there. Box of trinkets that someone thought was cool, no one gives a shit about, and it's the bane of your existence. So for us, it's all about how do you, connect the people with what they want how do you connect the consumer with the stream that they care about how do you connect them to the store where they can actually buy it they can't sell it to them and answering those questions while they were really really hard and they took like i said a lot of blood sweat tears and just like not willing to take no for an answer but it's important <laughs>
1: You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Tarabi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host Shada Tarabi. Hello and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shaded Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer, and I'm so excited you are here tuning into another episode of the show. Thank you so much for hitting play. We've got a jam-packed episode per usual, and we're kicking things off right away with the top three things trending in our industry that happened recently that I think you should know about. The first one is reported by MJ Biz Daily, titled. Budtender turnover hinders the cannabis industry, going on to say high turnover rates among budtenders continues to plague the cannabis retail sector, a problem that has ramifications for the industry beyond just the immediate costs. Budtenders are the first point of contact for consumers educating themselves and are often the best bet a marijuana brand has for getting the word out about a product. Cultivators and brands spend sizable portions of their budget sending sales reps to stores to educate these bud tenders about their products, only to have them leave shortly after. Chris Morset, the president of California-based cultivator Ember Valley, said, That's a million-dollar battle right there. You build relationships with bud tenders and people that are on the front line to the consumer, and then the next thing you know, they're gone. A recent report from data analytics company Headset found that in both the US and Canada, that 55% of bud tenders who worked at any point over the previous 12 months had departed by the end of that time period the article goes on to outline some ways to combat it but it is a real issue in any retail situation of course adding complexity specifically for cannabis brands whose only outlet for educating and selling their products is through the dispensary and bud tender experience it boggles my mind that this is kind of the forced direction that our industry is going towards just because of regulations and requiring brands to sell through these channels but I'm really curious if you have any creative ways for how you have navigated this either as a retailer or as a brand, so please reach out, let me know. I would love to learn from you and how you're handling these changes directly. Now, going into the next story, also reported from MJ Biz Daily titled Midyear State Cannabis Sales: A Mixed Bag Across the United States. This is a big one, you guys. And it goes on to say, as consumers adjusted to historic inflation and shrinking disposable income, we saw a split between emerging markets and mature markets. Newer recreational and medical markets posted the kind of double digit growth expected from emerging cannabis markets. Like Maine's rec market saw a 159% growth and Missouri's medical market saw 174% growth. But by contrast, more mature adult use markets in California, Colorado, and Oregon actually saw 20% or more declines compared to the first six months of 2021. While each state is a unique cannabis economy subject to varying governmental oversight and seasonal changes, including summer and winter tourism, some consistent themes did emerge in early 2022. You have accelerating inflation, eroding cannabis buyers' disposable income, forcing shoppers to pick and choose among products based on price. Cannabis sales have experienced this kind of sensitivity to disposable income before only in reverse, especially when the pandemic stimulus checks started in 2020, helping to really bolster cannabis industry sales to historic gains through 2021 in most states. Compared to other sectors of the economy such as food, auto insurance, electricity, inflation is not directly impacting cannabis prices yet. In fact, wholesale and retail marijuana prices continue to fall in most states, with production often outpacing consumption. The glut of cannabis products and brands have retailers in many states discounting their merchandise in hopes of shrinking, bulging inventories and boosting sales amid growing competition. This is such a glaring challenge that we are all dealing with. I think it will be a while before things normalize out and we get a true sense for the actual economy of cannabis, the opportunity, and the reality of the market. In fact, if you tuned into my episode from last week with Missy Bradley of Ripple, we discussed this exact topic as it applies to her brand in Colorado and just what she's observed operating for as long as they have. So we know that everyone, myself included, is feeling the reverb of everything going on. The third article is reported by Marijuana Moment, and it is titled, The Feds Issue First Refunds for Cannabis Products That Were Deceptively Marketed to Consumers. This story hits a little bit more close to home. Of course, I deal predominantly in the hemp side of the industry, and it is crazy you have the federal legality of hemp now for the past couple of years and the introduction of certain federal regulatory bodies the FTC the FDA and how they actually are regulating or sometimes not regulating or not actually um, following up with certain regulatory measures is where a lot of this chaos and confusion is happening but essentially a federal agency announced on Wednesday that it will be refunding Americans who bought CBD products from a cannabis company that the government says made misleading medical claims. The FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission, said it will be sending a total of $21,000 to cover the cost of products that this brand sold that were quote-unquote deceptively marketed. You know, sidebar, we can't say things like... CBD can actually help you sleep or CBD can help relieve your pain. So when you say certain claims, whether it's on a website, on a label that is opening up for issues with the FTC and of course now the FDA. So... This issue was actually happening with a particular company that got flagged through some of these regulatory investigations, and there were 576 consumers, you know, quote unquote, impacted and people will be refunded as a result of this. While the FTC and the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration, have stepped up their efforts to identify cannabis companies that they say are selling cannabinoid-based items with unsanctioned claims about medical benefits... This appears to be the first instance of an actual federal CBD refund to consumers, which is why I thought it was important to highlight it. Again, this has been ongoing over the past couple of years, but obviously now they're actually like taking action, which I think is, is something to pay attention to. In 2020, the FTC separately announced that it was launching an investigation against six cannabis companies that said it was making deceptive claims about their products. The enforcement action was called Operation CB Deceit. And the FTC, in conjunction with the FDA, has previously warned or sued other companies about claims related to CBD products. The FDA, for its part, also recently warned consumers about marijuana-infused copycat food products, so people who are knocking off Skittles or Hi-Chew or Runtz or anything like that, so something also just be mindful of because this is kind of what's happening from a federal level. They're paying attention to these things that are, in my opinion, a little bit out of hand in our industry. And the FDA for its part, specifically, they're kind of like up in arms about this because when it comes to these popular brands, you know, selling cannabis knockoffs, it's, you know, particularly targeted at children, which is a huge problem. The agency separately issued its first set of warnings to companies over the alleged illegal sale of products containing the increasingly popular cannabinoid Delta-8 THC. So we also recently saw them issue a slew of letters about how people are marketing and selling Delta-8. And then kind of some of the final notes at a congressional hearing that month, the FDA commissioner Robert Califf recognized that his agency has not taken meaningful steps to regulate CBD products over the years since hemp was legalized. You know, round of applause for that, you know, actualization. But he also put the onus on Congress to empower the agency to more effectively facilitate rulemaking. I keep saying it, but next year's revision of the federal farm bill will be very telling on the direction of a lot of these cannabinoids, which will impact regulations and what that will do for the future of the industry as we presently know it. So if anything I shared inspired you or made you outraged, please reach out and let's discuss why, and I will include the links to those articles specifically in the show notes below for reference. And now getting into today's episode, I'm super honored. I'm super excited. I really appreciate, admire, and adore this brand, and... I'm joined today by John Spadafora, the president of Veritas Fine Cannabis. They were founded in 2017 and Veritas was an early branded standalone growing operation in the state of Colorado. And it's easily one of my favorite flower brands and product brands. And now turning into today's episode, we'll give you some insight into why I love their products and brands so much. I am super grateful, honored always for the opportunities that this podcast affords me and I actually got a chance to meet John in person a few months ago when I was in Denver for a conference and got to tour OMG one of their gardens which is their term for their cultivation spaces and see the brand in person which is always such a treat for me because it kind of peels the curtain back as this podcast does as well but obviously seeing things in person touching plants being able to smell things ask questions with the people directly behind the brand is so invaluable so big shout out to Veritas and Grasslands for helping set it up and connect with these amazing brands and the individuals behind driving these brands forward. In this episode, we dive into how Veritas really established and set the stage for the craft cannabis era. In fact, they're really the first brand to own branded packaging and John gets into that story in the episode and I just think it's so fascinating. So really tune into that. We also discuss how they decide what strains to bring to market. They have over 100 different strains in rotation it's kind of chaotic but they make it work we also dive into the investment they made on their own website how they've navigated social media censorship they've been taken down so many times they keep getting back up again it's so inspiring and just really a cool brand to learn from and i'm really excited that we're able to have this conversation with john because Learning from them is really where the sweet spot of finding success for all of us in the industry really lies, right? And then we do wrap up the conversation, tapping into a little bit about how they empower their team to do great work by, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, or in this case, smoking their own dope. So John addresses that as well. And a little bit more about John, he is a cannabis industry veteran with an extensive history in brand initiation, brand operations, and marketing strategy. His knowledge of best practices for experiential marketing strategy and curating innovative consumer events has helped establish Veritas as one of Colorado's most recognizable and sought after cannabis brands. As president, John is responsible for day-to-day operations, business profitability, investor relations, and ensuring that the brand adheres to its core values as it continues to expand operations. He and his team focus on bringing the best of hospitality to the cannabis industry by developing and implementing diverse and multi-channel events to ensure the customer experience is as unique as everything produced by Veritas. Veritas. Prior to joining, John spent nearly two decades in the hospitality industry where he worked with top entertainment and hospitality companies like Virgin Hotels, Caesars Entertainment, and Live Nation. And by the way... I told you guys, we're launching some of these episodes on YouTube. Be sure to check out the video version of this episode on my YouTube channel. Also linked in the show notes below. You can also search Shada Tarabi, find my channel, look for the video with John. And please do not forget to hit subscribe. I still need 100 subscribers to get a custom name URL. So please and thank you in advance for tuning in over there. Plus, how fun is it to see the conversation come to life through video? I love it so much. It's super cool. So now without further ado, thank you so much again for joining me. Let's get straight to the episode. So please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome John to the show.
0: Uh, My name is John Spadafora. I'm now president of Veritas Fine Cannabis. I have been in charge of the marketing and sales aspects of the business for the last seven years. We were the first wholesale license that the state of Colorado granted, meaning we were the first person who was allowed to produce cannabis products without having a store that we also own to sell them to. We are a pure wholesaler, currently distribute to about 275 stores across the state. So while we're only in one state, we do have a very wide footprint inside of this state. And we put out some really great flour. You know, our mantra is about uh, ensuring that we preserve the terps. We try and choose strains that have the most terps. Our garden process is been designed to maximize the turf content of the flower. We focus on preserving them post-production and then on the marketing side, really focus our messaging around helping people to understand what the best product for them is with the idea that that will will treat them well and they'll be able to find, you know, what it is they look for. It's done really well for us. We do a lot of uh, experiential marketing stuff and that's always been a big part of the fun of this job for me and for, for the team around here. So yeah, I'm pumped to be here. I'm glad to join you and I'm excited and i glad to be here
1: happy to have you. We're going to just like dive right. And I love that you brought up experiential marketing. I definitely want to touch on that before I get into some of the marketing stuff. I want to go a little bit deeper on the brand. You know, how did it come to be? You're talking about being the first to get this type of license. Like I'm thinking a little bit to be candid, you know, with you and the listeners, you know, who do you have to be to be the person that gets that first license in a state like Colorado, where it's this legacy market. There's a lot of competition. Like, what is the background for you, for the founders, sure. to like bring this brand to market? And and so, like, how did you even approach launching in Colorado?
0: So it was actually super interesting. The Mike, my partner, who is the founder of the company, uh, has always been very motivated by phenomenal cannabis. He's very inspired by it. He's always uh, had found access to it. He's always appreciated the better parts of it. And when legal cannabis became a thing in Colorado, he told the story of how he was driving in his car and heard the announcement that they wouldn't be prosecuting. And this, that kind of started the the process. So he had been involved in the caregiver side of things from the early on in the medical market and had created a name for himself and for the products that he grew as being some of the better product on the market. I moved back to Colorado. I'm originally from Colorado, but I was in Vegas for eight years prior to this in 2014, with no intention of getting into cannabis, just moved for some other life reasons. And really struck me that when you went into a store at that time, everything was marked by strain, but nothing was marked by brand. So as a consumer, you would go through, and my wife liked this strain, we found great bait. There was one store in Boulder that grew great bait in a way that it was delicious, it was great, it was a very relaxing product for her, and it was like she really enjoyed it. It was kind of getting into cannabis, and we were just consumers at that point. And I went to a different store, and I bought the same strain, and it was a completely different experience. And that was kind of just a... a lightning rod moment for me. I'm like, this is really strange as a consumer, not knowing to ask where this came from and just seeing how it was labeled. Long story short, I ended up running into some of the team that Mike was working with that, was, that established that business that time. And they agreed and they were like, you know, it's important that we want to differentiate ourselves. That year, a store had entered product they had grown in one, the cannabis cup. They didn't get any credit. They didn't get, any, you know, only the people who knew about it. And I think that drove some of the decision so we set about the task of creating a brand and went through the whole process that engaged a phenomenal branding agency that I'd used in my hospitality career and started defining who we wanted to be and how we, you know, all the stuff you do, which was great. So we called ourselves a brand and then we went to stores and said, okay, now you need to call us Veritas. And it was like the record stopped. People are like, no one cares about that. That's not how it works. Uh, and it was crazy at the very beginning, I'll never forget when we said, you know, we, we created these jars that we etched and put our logo on. We thought they were so pretty. And we learned that everyone in the world who sells weed has the only jar they think they're capable of throwing weed out of, right? So that didn't work. So we went and we had these amazing kind of like sticker plates made. And I said, cool, use your own jar. Just put the Veritas logo on it, put the straight logo on it. And about 30% of the stores we sell to, would like, no, no one cares. We're not going to do that. So we stopped selling to them. And we said, okay, we're going to go to places that will support us. And we found that as the consumers started to see it, we had more gravitas with the retailers who people started coming in for the name froder. That was a long, long time ago. It's now evolved. Everything we put out is prepackaged and it's become, you know, we're very fortunate because we were here early and because our product's been so consistent, our garden does a phenomenal job that there's a very consistent experience from the consumer side. And I think that as a brand, You know, we like that we get credit. We also, I look at it as a responsibility. Now, if something goes wrong with the jar that you just paid for, you know who put it out. You know who gave it to you and it's on us to make it right. So I think that ultimately when you go down this road, the consumer is the one that wins. And it's been really fun because we were amongst the groups that were able to force Colorado to start acknowledging who was doing what. And for us, it's been great. We've grown a great brand following, but like I said, it also makes you accountable and it makes everyone else accountable too. So I think it's it's what the consumer would hopefully want.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I remember when I got to hang out with you in your office and go tour the garden, you were sharing a version of that story, maybe a little bit longer. So the thing that I remember from it was you just like showing me, you know, physical packaging and like, this is what your product looks like. And then going through the story of like, it used to be sold deli style or just. Like you're saying reshaping the market and really driving this experience for consumers to like choose your brand which was so disruptive at the time because that just wasn't done and so being able to build a brand in an industry that is so predicated on just you know i I hate to like you know diminish it but like just getting high i think people you know they assume oh like even people like myself in places like texas I couldn't really tell you a lot of strains, you know, prior to the last, you know, four years of my involvement in the industry. Why? Because I didn't know. And frankly, I didn't care as long as it was weed and it did what it was supposed to do. But now you're seeing obviously the consumer packaged goods influence in the cannabis industry and how important it is to have these distinct brands, have these brand messaging, as well as like the packaging that all these products go into. So I think you guys have done a really great job, obviously not just like building your own brand, but really setting the stage for brands to come after you. To kind of like dissect that a little bit more, you know, you're a cultivator first and foremost when you're talking about what goes in the jar, like you're saying consumers now know it's Veritas, they're buying and so it has quality assurance that they can either, you know, live or die by or y'all can live or die by with that brand promise. How many strains are you cultivating at any given time? Kind of how do you look at bringing in new genetics? Do you bring in new genetics? How do you approach the actual I guess just like bud side of your business, knowing that there are so many different, you know, degrees. If you are listening and you're a cultivator, you obviously know more of this language and stuff. But as a marketer, I'm thinking, yeah, there's different SKUs, there's different, you know, versions, different styles to be selling. So at any given time, how many strains do you have? What's the longevity of those parts in the market? Do you kind of grow? a batch or grow X amount of plants and, and do all plants make it, sure. do some not? And so how does that impact what ends up in the package and ultimately on the shelf? I'm just curious about that process for you guys.
0: No, it's funny. It, it's been a huge growing prop list that it took us a long time to learn through a lot of mistakes. And it's actually kind of tied to the same thing. You know, my my partner's got a. we had a realization a couple of years ago and he's spot on, right? I think it speaks to why you've seen this evolution of packaging and the number of strains, all these things. When we grew up and you bought weed, you bought it illegally, right? You bought it from a guy that had it. And a lot of times there wasn't a lot of negotiation to your point is you were just happy you had some weed. Does it get me high? Checks the box, does it taste good? Cool. The majority of the people who buy our products now have only known legal weed. You know, we've had legal weed on the recreational side in Colorado for eight years, which means that many, many people, if you're 26, you know, you've probably bought some illegal weed back in high school or college maybe, but for the most part, You've been able to go to the store and talk to the bud tender and say, I'm looking for this. I want to feel this way. I want to taste this way. I want to spend whatever it is. And so you've seen that consumer palette evolve. And I I think it really is very similar to comparable to how beer grew up. You know, when you think of like craft beer and craft beer started, it first started that everyone was doing kind of the same eight beers. They do a stout and an IPA and a Pilsner or whatever. And then as The consumer kind of saw that and you'd have the same menu anywhere you went. I was in Colorado in college at that same time. So I was going to New Belgium and Oasis and and Oscar Blues when they were just infants. And they all brew basically the same style. They started finding their lanes eventually. Now you go into any liquor store and if you like a hazy IPA that's got a fruit influence, I don't care if you're in Denver in a really cool liquor store or if you're in a gas station somewhere and anywhere, you're going to find an option that will fit that bottle. And I think cannabis is the same. So if you look at strains, you know, to go back to your question, our, our inventory right now, we have about 140 strains in rotation. And that's a lot. You know, I was going to say, is
1: that normal compared to no, maybe other markets or competitors?
0: No, you know, from the garden standpoint, you always want to cultivate one strain per room if you can. That's how you're going to increase your yield at the highest point and also minimize challenges with the product. What we've found, though, because it's a federally illegal product and we can only sell inside the state of Colorado, we have to diversify the menu to give people some choice. And what we've learned, it's similar to how the beer companies have learned is that people like flavor, they like variety and they like excitement. So we really focus on understanding what's in each of these strains, what curves are there and how will those make you bill. And we try and categorize them in a way that the consumer, it's easy for the consumer to understand and to get to what they're looking for. But then within that, we rotate our strains significantly. You know, I think our sales sheet this week had about 45 strains available. And those are different. The way that we run our system, we'll harvest the strain. We won't harvest that strain again for, depending on which wheel it's in, either five or 10 weeks. And that creates scarcity on the market. If you're a and you see pineapple blast, that you love it, then you got to get it because it won't be around for a bit again. And again, I think it's all tied to the same stuff. It's tied to the packaging. It's tied to everything else. You know, most, most of what we grow, the team is phenomenal. We've, we've entered into the world of tissue culture now. So we're, we're starting from the very beginning and we're ensuring our plants are as healthy as they can possibly be. We're ensuring that they're, you know, it helps with turf content, it helps with TAC content, it helps with everything. But outside of that, it's about giving the consumer choice and just listening to them and, and keeping it unique and keeping it exciting. And that has worked really well for our brand. The garden hates it. The garden would love to do one first for room. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's about what's the best output for that space. And we we're very fortunate. We have a big team and we've invested very heavily in that team so that people are able to, we, when we have an analytics department, who goes through and evaluates performance of strains in different rooms at different times of the year. And then looks at that exact same information from the marketplace and say, okay, this is how it does in the garden. How does it do in it the storefront? Because all that's important. You know, If you buy a jar of our product, I want when you open it to be like, wow, that's amazing. And so all, it all, it's all part of the same conversation and we're constantly rotating those strains. I think variety is really important.
1: How has that maybe evolved from, you know, when the brand first started? Obviously, a lot of the brand allure has come over time. You've cultivated the brand in the market. You've created this desire. Consumers are they're now looking for Veritas. So I imagine today, the consumer who might like a particular strain, they know, well, the strain's only going to be here for X amount of time. I better get it while it's hot. They're expecting kind of, you know, the next thing that you guys are going to release or perhaps waiting for the next time you do release something they like. Was that always how the brand was? Or like when you first started, how many strains were you doing? Like, how did you get to this? Point? What were some of those steps that you took to decide? And maybe it's just time. It's just time building up a reputation to say we now can do this.
0: Yes. I mean, so we started, we were nowhere near that. I mean, we started with eight strains or something like that, you know, as you go through the process. That library grows and you learn how to do it in a way that makes sense for all parts of the business. Because you're right, like we're in year seven at this point in time as an operation. We're in year six as a brand. That's a long time. You know, it's a long time for us to have been doing this. And so there's quite a bit we picked up and learned as as we've gone along the way. You know, one thing we saw as the market mature, that that variety became more important. And if you think back to the old days, which you see in some states, and that you're right now in Missouri, Stores are pumped when they have wheat, right? They're pumped when they have something super special. But if you, I sign up for a lot of these both blasts every time a new store or a new state goes on. And that's typically the battle cry right? Hey, we've got wheat, come and get it. And, you know, that's great and good for them. But eventually that changes. And when that changes, you have to have a unique position in the market. And there's a few people who I think are doing it really well. We certainly have figured out the variety side of things. And so that's one of our niches. But, you know, like you said, it's that connection with the consumer. we. Take our jars. And so every one of our jars has a category color label. And the idea is exactly that. If last time you were around, you had an orange one, and it was great. And the one you had wasn't there, then now you can find a different one. And we've also looked to try and make it easier for our customer. After we kept getting our Instagram account pulled down, one year, I think we lost 100,000 followers worth of Instagram accounts across three different accounts. So we invested really heavily in a website. And the first thing we wanted that website to do was answer the question we got most frequently, which is where can I find X? So we actually now have finally got to a spot where we're able to scrape online store menus every day. We input that information into our website. So if you were here and you're like, I love Cherry Hills, I need some more Cherry Hills, you can go to our website next to see who's got that available, which has been really phenomenal from a customer standpoint. As a business, it's also been great because now our dispensary partners will have people coming in specifically for an individual product, which gives us a lot of power in the marketplace.
1: Yeah, it's closing that information gap that so many brands unfortunately don't have the opportunity, finances, just situation to implement the technology to actually be able to do something with it. But I can imagine dispensaries that carry your products are like, hell yeah, Veritas is marketing and driving people to us, which is obviously making them more likely to want to carry your products because you're actually able to, like I said, close that gap. And, And I'm glad you brought up for the listeners, they can't see it. So they just need to go to one of your Instagrams if they're active. I did just check. I think you have one operating right now. We're
0: we're back to crew again. Yeah, it's it's super
1: exciting. (laughs) But your website, I'm glad you mentioned the website. I preach a lot about having a website. In cannabis, it's a little bit more nuanced and tricky because obviously you can't sell direct to consumer, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a website. And this is a prime example of how do you take these tangible opportunities where someone is buying your product? I didn't know that about the color coding. So that is a cool little note to obviously be able to subtly, but also very directly influence consumers. If they can't remember the strain, they can't remember, you know, anything else like oh, it was the orange one. Those are obviously great cues to have. But going on the technology piece, I want to just kind of, I guess, clarify for listeners, also just like banter back and forth with you. I remember being in Colorado with you and we were talking about that. And I was expressing to you, I was looking for a particular product. And I was so frustrated because the websites that it wasn't the brand's website, it was like you know, Weed Maps and Leafly and all these marketplaces, they were not accurate to what inventory they had. And so me as a consumer looking for these products, it was very difficult and I didn't have any success. So I felt, you know, helpless in a scenario where I would have loved to support this brand. I think it was like a beverage product I was looking for and just didn't have success finding it because the technology was not obviously up to date in real time. So I'm curious if you can, you know, just like divulge a little bit more about how you're able to, I guess, navigate that in real time. Are there integrations with these POSs that these dispensaries are using that is semi-accessible to Bolton? Do you have to do something completely custom? How do you maintain it to keep it up to date daily? It just seems like I come from technology, so that's a big undertaking to kind of navigate. But Obviously, the outcome is so important to connect consumers to your products.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things. If we had been really hard headed, this has been a long, I mean, we multiple years before we got it to the spot where we're really super happy about it. And there are no plugins, there's no integration that You know, the challenges in cannabis, I think, you know, we're currently in 275 stores. There's probably 14 different POS systems that they use. Damn. Some of them have different capabilities than others, you know, and then you've got all. So it was a mess. And I think that's why everybody struggled. I think everybody would love to give and have this info. But to your point, even the weed maps the leaflets of the world don't get it right often because it's only as good as what's been manually updated. What we were able to do, you know, I, I think about every day, we're really fortunate because of the people we have in this organization, kind of from top to bottom. And we're very fortunate that we've been in a position where we've been focused on growth almost exclusively for a long time until we got to this kind of year lowdown And we were able to really find a lot of people who just wanted to go out and answer the questions. It wasn't about, you know, like it drove them crazy too. So how do I solve it? We actually took a platform that was engineered for a different purpose. It's for sales predominantly and for sales reps. And it's a opportunity map for lack of a better term. Who's carrying my competitor? Who's doing this, that, and the other? But we were able to figure out how to export some information on the back end. And what we learned is that we were actually getting a snapshot of what was available on existing store venues today. So it's updated once a day and we can go through and know that because this service, which has completely different purpose, is able to integrate with all those different POS systems. I think that they're currently in about 89% of the stores in Colorado. So almost all of them, we were able to figure out how to just pull this information out. And then we on the website had to build a vehicle where we could export that as a CSV and then kind of plug it back in. and then. There's multiple places where people can go and source it. So they can go to the stream page and be like, I only want to know about charity or not I get more charity sold? Or they can go to the map page and say, what's closest to me? And then click on the store and see what they have on their shelves. And so the idea is to just harness the information and then give it to people however they want to digest it. Our next iteration, we've talked a lot about a loyalty club and that's something we'll be rolling out at some point soon. But for me, that's always going to be about more than just making shit cheaper. No one, like anybody can do that and it's not impressive, right? If you're a retailer that doesn't, you don't care. I ran bars and nightclubs and some hospitality stuff for a long time. And I learned that the most expensive thing on your shelf is never what you paid the most for. It's what what you can't get rid of. If it's still sitting there, I don't care if you got it for a bargain, it drives you crazy, right? You go to your store, there's something in there. Box of trinkets that someone thought was cool. No one gives a shit about and it's the bane of your existence. So for us, it's all about how do you, connect the people with what they want how do you connect the consumer with the stream that they care about how do you connect them to the store where they can actually buy it they can't sell it to them and answering those questions while they were really really hard and they took like i said a lot of blood sweat tears and just like not willing to take no for an answer but it's important and i think that as a consumer that's the hopefully you'll see more of that coming from on all sides that's how you make a good choice for you you know
1: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. Like I said, I come from technology and it just has made me gouge my eyes out like repetitively every day, just realizing there are not proper solutions for our industry, which is an opportunity for businesses and brands with a team or time really to take it on and to try to resolve something, you know, for your own brand. Or I'm sometimes like it's like a broad PSA to any technologists out there, like the cannabis industry needs technology that integrates into resolving these at a better scale. And it's just like it's crazy to me that we don't have access to it. And it's obviously so needed. And it's interesting. I wanted to point this out. Maybe you find it interesting too, but for the listeners for sure. When you are a regulated market, and I'm sure medical too, you have to report daily to the state what is coming in, what is going out. So the data is there these dispensaries like have to say, oh, I've got three, you know, packages or zero or whatever. It's just like the data is there. It's just, yeah, how do you extract that data? How do you make sense of the data in a meaningful way that is, like you said, really going to enable the consumer to get what they want and, and everybody wins in that regard. Like the dispensary made a sale for something. You as the brand had your product, you know, go to the hands of the person who wanted it. Like everybody wins. Yet that seems to be such a big ask for our industry. And I think so many people are, You know, treading water so feverishly that that's not a concern of theirs, which is maybe the case for me looking for this beverage. It was a smaller brand. I don't know how long they've been in the market. Maybe they don't have the resources or there's too many things to care about. So how do you, you know, start to take it apart and actually give some attention to it? So I know a lot of the driving factor, like you mentioned, was because you realized your website was such prime real estate for your brand, especially given that social media platforms were very volatile. I would love to turn the conversation and talk a little bit about how you I guess lean into because social media is important for you. I met some of your team who operates your social media. I know that like losing it is obviously not for anybody at any stage like a positive by any means, but it's also, I'm sure, happens so frequently for y'all that you're just like, it happened again. Like, what's next? How do you handle the constant friction with social media to stay on them, to kind of make these other accounts up? How do you build this consumer wheel of like, hey, we're down over here, but we're up over here. Come find us. Like, I just can't imagine that song and dance also knowing that everything else we're talking about is relevant and true, but consumers are going to be on Instagram. So for all the brands who are like, I don't want to be on Instagram, I'm like, well, you're missing out on your customer potentially. So knowing that that's the reality, how do you kind of approach social media? What other platforms do you play on? Do you not play on? Like, what do you care about most when it comes to social media?
0: No, thank you. And you you hit that right on the head. I mean, when this, the first time we lost an account, it was a catastrophic, like, oh my God, I cannot believe that just happened. And we're getting ready to do X, whatever we were doing. And now how do we communicate with people? You know, we had 40,000 followers 10 minutes ago. Now I have zero. (laughs) And it's like, and you still have a a widget that you've created that you got to get out and you want to tell people about. So we do all the social platforms still. I mean, we do Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. Um, We're getting ready to start a, I'm not very cool. I can't remember what's the hidden one. The Oh, uh, the, the hidden not one?
1: Hidden one not TikTok.
0: No, not TikTok. I don't Snapchat? Know. I'll, I'll, no, not Snapchat either. What is the other one?
1: I'm like probably... There the
0: peppers only like it's, Like it's really growing and I, I've been pitched on it. We're, we're building one of those. Anyway, we're on all the social media.
1: Interesting. Bible. Okay, I got to do some research.
0: <laughs> we, yeah, I'll send it to you. I feel like an idiot though. Can't say the name off the top of my head. I got the, I a few things today. But we do all of those. What we're trying to do now, I think we've learned that it's less volatile if you give them less stuff to work with. I mean, we'll still every once in a while have an issue. And it's funny, like we'll see posts get reported for nudity as a post of a plant. You know, it makes zero sense. But we've learned that if you, you know, if Instagram is really worried about selling. So what we try and do, again, tying everything back to the website, we focus on the website being the place where we'll communicate the actual, where you can get things or, you know, what Instagram considers to be more of a salesy. And then on the Instagram feed, we'll try, we'll, Pictures of plants. Well, you know, We'll be more, we'll share some of the art we do. We, we do a really good job, I think, of connecting with a lot of different consumers where they are. And so we'll use our Instagram to focus on that. We just did a custom shoe drop. It was really cool. There's this great local artist that huge in the shoe community. We think that the shoe community smokes a lot of weed and we like the shoe community. It's artistic. It kind of fits everything else we do. So to access that community, we did a custom run of shoes. And then Instagram will then talk about it and show pictures of those shoes, right? As opposed to weed sales. So that's how we've been approaching it. It works sometimes, it doesn't. And I think that now we've been able to take a pretty good grain of salt and say, okay, you know, we lose this one, we know we're going to be okay. And if anyone else loses theirs, you will also be okay. It sucks. But I think an investment in the time and energy to have something else was critical for us and to have that website that, you know, our website traffic is significant. You know, we're one of the probably more frequented cannabis brand websites anyway, because we do put so much information on there. Back in the days, you'd see as Instagram and if anybody got a seed in their eighth and I talked about the accountability, we hear about it, right? It'd be just cool. Well, look, we want to hear about that. We want to make it right. So we took a Nordstrom's approach and said, look, we're going to make it right regardless. But to be able to do that's the website. And so, you know, just, it's been a long time of educating the consumers of this is the best way for us to interact with you because it can't go away. Right? The website we own, there's nothing illegal about, about having a cannabis website. And then Instagram, when it goes away, we'll build it back up again. You know, we've gotten very good at the Instagram challenge. And bothering someone in California every day to think, have our star page back, please. And it's worked a couple of times. So it's, you know, put ketchup on it and eat the shit. Yeah, no, nothing else we can do, right?
1: It's unfortunate, but it's the most comforting thing you can do. I just like, yeah, my heart goes out because as someone who is very active on social media, it's like, you don't want to lose that content, especially as a brand where that is a channel to get in front of your consumers. But it is inevitable. I recently got, I should say recently in November of last year, I got deactivated on my personal account, but I do make a lot of cannabis centric content and I know I do. So it's like, you know, par for the course. And there was a, a gentleman in California, like very legacy market, Steph, and he's like, welcome to the club. Like if it, if it hasn't happened to you once yet, like, you know, you're not a real cannabis person. And so now it's just, you know, like I said, par for the course. curious to get a little bit more maybe insight from you from things that I've heard maybe about social yeah. media and Instagram in particular. And I'm curious how you guys kind of view and navigate it just given the position of your brand. Instagram doesn't like cannabis. Like we know that it's in their terms of service. They do assume, you know, we're selling drugs to minors or just selling drugs outright. You mentioned something though about a post getting flagged as nudity when it's clearly cannabis. I've kind of started to come to the realization a lot of times that it's not Instagram that's flagging our content it perhaps is an editor a consumer all of it so you're obviously aware of it right like how do you i guess in maybe it's the short answer maybe it's a long answer i'm just curious like how do you kind of like handle navigate that knowing that that is the industry that is the market like you don't want to not put content out there but at the same time you could very well have a post that is compliant you know, not breaking any of the terms of service and still getting flagged for something because somebody just doesn't like what you posted.
0: Yep. I haven't figured that one out yet. You know, we do need to interact and I, and we talk about all the time. We don't have these accounts to not use them, right? Yeah. And it, you can't be so afraid of getting taken down that you don't post anything. We try to be as, all the terms the best we can. And we just know like it could be a competitor. It could be someone who had a bad experience. It could be an ex-employee. It could be anything, right? And someone's going to flag you. But at the end of the day, we're very comfortable in what we do. We're very comfortable in who we are. We're very proud of what we do and and how we do it. And, you know, I think if there's a good side to the social media world, it gives you unadulterated access to people, right? You hear what they say, what they think, you hear what they think when it's good, you hear what they think when it's bad. And for us, at least, it's a huge priority. I respond to quite a few messages myself, or we got our social media department responds to quite a few. And, you know, it's unfortunate that I think my my gripe with Instagram is more about when they see that reporting and there's not someone with the, the intelligence to look back and be like, oh, okay, this is not bullying or this is not nudity or this is not whatever it is that there is been reported as. That shouldn't be able to stop everything. And the fact that, you know, Instagram's policies kind of put you in that spot. That's my big rub with Instagram. Anytime you do something if right. you're doing something right, you're in front of a lot of people, there's, you're not going to make everyone happen. And we try to, we want to, but we know that's not possible. And. Listen, I don't think everybody plays by the same rules like we do, right? I, I've never in my entire career reported a competitor. I just would, that's what we play to me, right? Like that's-
1: I don't want that juju. Like I would not want to put that out there. Yep. Yeah. I would never do it, but I'm sure it's happening to both of us.
0: Yeah. imitation is a great form of flattery. And certainly I, I agree with that. I also think that unauthenticated anger for no reason is also a form of flattery. You know, there, there's a point where this is, people think this is all fun and games. And it's really easy. Right. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of stress and it's certainly not easy. And, you know, I, you can't get hung up on the small stuff. I can't get hung up on the small stuff. You guys, too much big stuff to deal with and to worry about and to plan for. So I've never put it out there. I still get that bad juju coming my way, I guess. I guess it doesn't do any good, but
1: I just think to your point, you know, to reiterate your sentiment as well as just like a comment you made earlier too about your website with the more, and I think it's like the whole, you know, celebrity status to people want to be famous. But when you become famous, when you become a big brand, when you, you know, push yourself out into the light more, you're going to be more penetratable. Like people are going to want to throw rocks and sticks and they're going to want to, you know, have an opinion about every little thing you do. So it's a little bit, yeah, you want to be out there. You want more brand awareness, but then you also have to accept there's going to be more people who hate on you, don't like what you're doing and have comments and opinions that, Yeah, at the end of the day, as a business owner, as an executive, you can lean into and you can let everything piss you off and ruffle your feathers or you can, yeah, that happened. That sucks. Let's try to do better. Let's try to analyze it and maybe figure out how we can prevent it. But at the end of the day, it's inevitable to some extent. So you can't harbor it or get frustrated with it. So the point of your website being your primary investment, I think, is really important to echo because you said something else I thought was really intelligent you're constantly updating it. And I see too many brands in our industry, just because of the nature of the business, they don't sell on their website. So They're like, oh, my website is just a landing page. And I'm like, do more with your website, like, make it something. And so obviously, it didn't just happen overnight. It was time that you were educating and and encouraging customers to not interact with you in certain ways on social media to have, you know, this feedback loop coming through your website. So it's, you know, over time, kind of restructuring things. But I think that's the safest place for canvas businesses to find success. And it's clear that you guys have found a lot of success in the number of traffic that, you know, you're seeing to your site. So it's more proof that that is a really key piece of real estate that people just don't pay attention to nearly enough in our industry.
0: Well, and you see it around the head, you have to keep it. It has to be fresh, right? Like it has to be current. It has to be accurate. As soon as it's not accurate, you probably lose that person again. And we've been able to monetize it as well. We're very excited. I think my biggest accomplishment that I'm most excited about this last year has been that our Merge program has really kind of turned that's now a profit center. It's not a huge profit center. I mean, we're certainly not cookies, but we are able to, you know, people like the brand. We give them a bit interact with that as well. Now, there you go. I love it. I
1: got some Veritas Merge.
0: Beautiful. And so, you know, I think that helped us to justify that as well. You know, we, we sure. are making sales every day. And even though it's not your core business, you know, we're learning how to do that. And one day we hope, I mean, if I was in California, I could ship direct from my, from my website and who knows how the laws will change one day, but when it does, we like to be ready to do that as well.
1: Absolutely. And I think on that note, it can also provide additional revenue streams. It can provide additional touch points for customers, obviously building customers into fans and letting them, you know, embody some of the brand. They get to wear your merch. I have the rolling tray. I think I have a sweatshirt from you guys. I love wearing it out. You're a cool brand, and so obviously consumers they want to feel that too. And so those are also things that I've observed some brands lean into, especially also from a social media perspective, where maybe you can't be selling or promoting obviously your cannabis products, but hey, you can talk about your merch, and you could even maybe do some ads on those products that direct people back to your website. And so there are some creative ways that I've started to see some brands find loopholes for some of the crap that we have to deal with as an industry, so.
0: Yeah, no, I, and I'm a lunatic on the merch side. I mean, when we first started doing this and I, I ran bars forever, right? So I saw what it looked like for someone to come in and bring a box of t-shirts that sucked. They were uncomfortable, they were scratchy, they walked, you know, they fit weird or whatever. And nobody wanted those. Those would be in the manager's office until the buff boys spilled a drink on themselves. They needed something for that night. But other than that, nobody wanted them. So we put a lot of energy into saying, okay, how do we make stuff that people want? and that you're going to be proud to wear and you're going to be pumped to wear and it's going to be comfortable and soft. And, and that's all, you know, it's all the investment. Same thing. It's funny you mentioned the second, we actually just launched a couple months ago, a website um, that's just our merch for exactly that reason. We can now do Google ads and those type of things and, and it's, it's working.
1: Yeah, I see that being a really big play especially in the CBD hemp space where you're doing these ads. It's very, you know, mysterious. Someone's wearing a t-shirt or they've got a hat. And it's kind of maybe alluding to something plant-based and then you obviously swipe, click and it takes you to the secondary site that I haven't figured out kind of like all the different touch points, but I think that site can have a link to your regular site if you're like a CBD business trying to sell So It gets a little convoluted, but it's possible and obviously people can strategize and figure out how to make it work for their brand and I really, I think just test and iterate, which is so much of being a marketer. It's just obviously the tools that cannabis brands and marketers have access to is sometimes stifled. So it's just, you know, par for the course.
0: But, you know, there's something that you said earlier too. You know, this has also been an exciting year in that we're finally starting to see tech that's becoming more relevant to us. We've got a tech stack that we use on the marketing side. We've got a different one we use on the operations side. And this is the first year where we actually have really great visibility into the wholesale market. You know, I know what my competitors are selling for. I know their prices. I know who they're selling to. I know what we're selling for on the retail side. And I know what my competitors are selling for on the retail side. And those, is really important information for us. And while it's not integrated and like as easy as you'd like it to be yet, this is the first year where I think we've seen multiple programs that we felt the need to subscribe to and participate in that I think are... Changing how we do business and allowing us to, you know, be smarter as opposed to just taking a lot of guesses, which is what the move was for a long time, you know.
1: Too long that's been the move. I know. I've been so just like eager and excited every time I talk to these like technology companies in our space. And I would admit more just like as an observer, because I don't adopt some of these technologies because it doesn't make sense for my business, but you know they're good, but they're not great, so it's like, hey, that's at least we have something we can work with. you can get your feedback from your businesses and start to kind of build the platforms to be better to be better integrated and the reality is no tech is perfect. I mean even just coming from platforms and integrations, I'm a WordPress gal. I love open source it's the best solution. I believe for the canvas industry at least for brands starting out because you don't have the fear of your site being taken down for posting something that is you know breaking in terms of service or something but WordPress being open source opens the door for lots of inputs and all the plugins. They're not all great plugins. And so it goes into, you know, who built that plugin? What's the integration? How does it actually work with your site? And then WordPress makes new updates. So I know technology is not perfect, but obviously the right technology in place with the right team to strategize, and implement it.
0: The right technology partner too. I mean, every piece of technology that we're working with, it wasn't just a sales rep we interact with. We we talked to the their engineers are calling and saying, okay, you wanted this, we were able to do that. Does that work? Well, it's sure because
1: they're eager to like, want to shape it to be better for their target clients. And I think that is the opportunity that I observe. It's not that the tech is perfect right now, but it's that these businesses are at least listening, which again, my PSA to any technologists, I'm like, we need better solutions to support our industry. And so it sounds like you've at least been able to find some that can empower you and your team to do what you need to do.
0: Well, and it's great too. You know, like, when I had a problem with my POS system in the restaurant, like they would fix or walk them through a fix, but they weren't always as interested in understanding my base problem, and why we got there because, you know, and, and that's different here because these are just forming and they, uh, it's really helpful. You know, it, it's, so yeah, it, it's getting better, getting better one day.
1: At least you have access to some things. So it's right? start.
0: Exactly. You were talking
1: about oh, the shoe drop and I know that you guys do a lot of artist collaborations. There's been some skis in the past kind of what is the inspiration behind approaching those types of opportunities? Did you always do it with the brand? At what point did you start to kind of lean into these conversations? And how do you execute collaborations? Like, how do you, I, you know, identify, oh, this is a really great artist. We want to work with them in some capacity. What does that look like? Was it like the shoe came first or the skis came first? Now, like, How do you just like fit it all into your program of marketing?
0: No, it all, uh, the skis were the first thing we did collaboration wise. And, you know, that started with, we knew that in winter time, the market slows a bit and ski areas perk up for us, but generally speaking, the market slows. We're in Colorado. People are very outdoor driven. And we also feel that the outdoors space and the consumers who are outdoors doing outdoor things are great weed customers, right? They're smoking a joint when they're taking a hike. They're, they're out at a barbecue. Yeah. Right. That's a, me. A, a joint at Red Rocks. If you have an experience is a Something everyone should experience at least once in their life. It's an incredible thing. And so we said, okay, we're here in Colorado. This is the stuff we do with our free time anyway. How do we as a brand connect with these people? Right. And how do we as a brand say, hey, you're, you know, you're an outdoor lifestyle individual who likes cannabis. We're a good fit for you. So this, the very first ski collaboration, our art director actually designed the very first pair of skis. And we went through with Icelandic and we figured out, you know, they really, we really kind of made it up as we were along. to, but. We knew that we wanted to put things out that people would want to have. You know, I, I ran barges long enough that I know no one wants the Corona bike that the chain squeaks. Like it's not, that's not a knock on Corona, i have really some good bikes too. But I'll never forget having a bar in, having a bike park there and they were all proud to bring it in and we were doing this raffle and whatever. And no one gave a shit because it was like a crappy bike that wasn't going to be, you know, functional. So we said, if we really want to connect the people who are in this space, let's give them something they want. So Icelandic, in my opinion, is the best manufacturer of skis in Colorado. They're, they're very similar to us. They're well-known. They're widely distributed, but they're local. It's still the guys who are doing it that are doing it every day. And that's a $900 pair of skis. It's not cheap. And if you ski, they're phenomenal. So we did a, a run with Icelandic, and then we did a program where we gave some of those away to bytenders, and some of those went to managers. And the majority of them went, we put a ticket on every product we sold or every eighth we sold that year. And you could go on, and we gave away a pair every Friday. So you go through, you grab your ticket, you can go online, register your code, and then every Friday we give away a new pair. So we gave away I think 15 pairs the first year that way. And the entries would roll over, so it was a way for us to build a database. It was a way for us to interact with that consumer, and it took off really, really well. So we said, okay, let's do this again. And then you mentioned art. You know, it's a, same thing. We collaborate with a ton of artists because we love artists and we think it's really cool but also because we love the art community and we think it's an important aspect of cannabis. And we think that we wanted to connect with the art community in a real way, as opposed to just sponsoring a festival here or there. So we source out, and this is majority of it's done by Sarah, our our art director relationships with tons of different artists, up and coming big ones, small ones, people who do murals, people who do work on wood. I mean, all kinds of different stuff. And we'll, we'll buy paintings from these individuals. We'll, have them paint things at live events for us. And then we'll use those pieces of art to decorate dispensaries. So we'll do like an installation dispensary with local art and come and show three or four different pieces in the lobby. And it's just a different way to put your brand in front of people than just screaming, please buy right? Because it's like nobody wants to be sold to all the time. They want to interact and they want to see. So the skis evolved. We found this great. The second year we used the local artist, Joe Palak, who's this amazing artist who does these line drawings. They're incredibly complex. And that was really took off. I think it was like, oh my God, they do a run of partner skis every year. You know, Jeep buys some other big companies buy them as well. And they were like, we've never seen someone approach it this way. And the ski really took off in a way that that year people started buying skis. So on our website, people were buying ice, lightly skis at list price. And there was really starting to establish a value for that product where people were now going to stores during the slow time, knowing that our products had those codes if you look at a participation rate i think last year's last year's drawing we had about 28 percent of the people who uh, of the products that we shipped codes be redeemed which is incredible I and mean, we're shipping tens of thousands of products a week every week and so for us it's it, you know that entire ecosystem we figured out one i get to keep buying skis so that's awesome right I'm, i love i mean, we're in a skiing shirt right now like this is but we figured out a way to use that to actually connect with an audience and to give them something unique and special. This year's skis, so there's there's a new set being designed right now. We're gonna do the artist reveal in a couple months. And this year's skis will actually be carried in the Icelandic ski shop because they get so much requests for people asking how they can get these. They're gonna help support that as well. And so to me, it's a great example of, you know, having an idea where we wanted to be from a consumer standpoint. And then not just, you know, meeting them where they are. So we go through every... Teton Gravity Research and every ski movie that comes through Colorado, we sponsor it. We set up a little booth and we tell them what we're doing. And it's like, we interact with that community. And it's not a surprise that like, we are really strong in the mountain towns. You know, you'll see a tremendous amount of air sold in Aspen and in Bale and all these places. So it's how you have fun with a promo and it's how you make it sustainable. And it's not just like a passion project. I got a bunch of skis sitting around the office I can't give away. Instead, it turns into being a real opportunity for customers to interact with your brand. And we also like when you win them, if you were to be, if you live locally, we'll ship them back to the store where you bought them. So there gets to be this moment, right? Where you get to come into the store where you bought the eight because we record all this on the, the forum. And you get, a, you know, if you're in Colorado, you get a thousand dollar pair of skis. That's an exciting day.
1: That's a very cool story. Obviously, most people just see the action of, oh, Veritas is, you know, launching this collaboration and they're doing this promotion, but to get to hear kind of the, you know, thought process and the ecosystem that goes on behind it and also the evolution of it, like how you started approaching it. Obviously, you didn't jump straight to what you're doing and preparing for this year. Maybe you could, maybe you would if you could go back in time, but maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you started the way that you were supposed to start and it was the natural progression over time. And I love just the other touch points of involving it into obviously the ethos of the brand just the approach of how you guys are Colorado based and you understand who the Colorado, you know, traditional consumer is, who likes to be outside, likes to be outdoors, being very active, but then also incorporating it into non-cannabis specific events. It sounds like doing movie premieres, just being involved in like the human journey of I consume cannabis, all these different intervals. And so like, how can Veritas be a part of these other experiences that I enjoy as as me. So I really appreciated learning about that because that is one of the things that I think people always want to do collaborations and they have maybe like really big dreams about executing it. And then, yeah, to your point of, of sharing with the Corona bike, it's like, yes, you could buy skis and just put your label or logo on them. But is that actually going to, you know, drive the type of outcome that this brand or business is seeking? Maybe, maybe not because, they're not the best quality and obviously you as a brand it's funny it makes me think of I just started listening to this new podcast I don't remember the name of it to be honest but the idea was sharing stories of greatness and it was talking about Steve Jobs and how he obviously makes or made very the brand makes very beautifully designed computers but he has the same care and concern with his design team designing the inside of the computers and how you do, you know, one thing is how you do everything. And so I can very much get that from you and your brand of just, of course, we're going to do the best quality. Like, of course, we're going to support local. Of course, we're going to be a part of these other aspects of our customers' lives because we see our customer as this total person and not just someone who likes to get high. So I just appreciated that. And I wanted to acknowledge that. Well, yeah, I had it.
0: made that connection. I have probably read the Steve Jobs autobiography seven or eight times. I just think it's such an <laughs> amazing book to see. Yeah. You no, know, he was an asshole, right? I and mean, he, he was not a good dude in a lot of aspects. He ran a good business. <laughs> but he brought the best. I mean, he got people to do shit they never thought they could do. And yeah, I mean, it's fun. Like the energy around here when we start to get into executing the ski program. I mean, we just did our artist select two months or two weeks ago. It's so fun because everyone knows, okay, we're gearing up and it's getting new ski time. And now, you know, these artists will do a whole set of merch to go alongside of it. And so, and we've been able to bring, you know, there's been times that artists have been discovered by other companies and they, and that's it. Phenomenal, you know, and so, yeah, we we love it. It's fun, and and I think it speaks to what marketing should be, right? Marketing isn't just telling people what to do, and in fact, it should never be that. I think it should be interacting with them and figuring out what makes them tick and what they want, and that's how you build sustainable brands. That's how you build you know real connections. I guarantee, if you want a pair of our skis, you probably buy Veritas more often than not. And hundred oh, percent, your friends are probably sick of hearing about it, but you get like, it, it's. It's a real interaction and it's a point where even if we never interact that customer again, they're gonna have a positive memory for us. So I think it's important.
1: Yeah. And even the the just like the closing the loop of having them pick up from the dispensary where that opportunity makes sense. It's it just it's bringing this obviously consuming cannabis is very physical, but the relationship to a brand sometimes doesn't feel physical because you're purchasing through a dispensary, you're purchasing your bud tender, but this like enables them to kind of have like a physical piece of the brand in a tangible way that they can experience. And so I love You know, just the idea of someone picking up their skis from the dispensary. And of course, they're going to be more loyal to your brand because you, like you said, you're you're understanding who your customer is and trying to delight them in these, these unique ways.
0: My favorite pictures and when we get the pictures of the, of the winner, because like, it's like, you know, you win something, you're like, is this a scam, yeah. right? And you should <laughs> actually get it. Like, you're like... Well, I was
1: going to ask, you know, I mean, you you obviously answered it. You said how many skis you sent out, but I find sometimes a lot of these, like, there's another brand called Tacovas. They're a boot company based here in Texas and their homepage is like one of those, enter your email and we'll give away $500 gift card, you know, for boots. And I think they are like, we draw a winner every week. And I'm like you know, I just don't think you do. I, I don't just don't that. think you actually award people. And so my observation of that is, yes, it sounds like you guys actually do what oh, you're yeah. you know, promoting. And so I think for the brands and the people listening, don't just say you're going to do something because it's the cool thing to do and then not actually execute it. Because I do think consumers like myself in this booth scenario, I'm like, I'm not going to enter because this is a sham. So yeah, Sorry, Jacobus, but you no, guys do that. Running
0: here, you want your email on another list. I get enough crap every day, <laughs> all day long. And yeah, no, we actually, we give away, I think we do about 50 pairs a year right now. And we'll actually be upping that number as we start to go to new states, because this will be something that we think is central to our brand identity and something yeah. that we're going to do everywhere. So another you know, smart point about the desire to do collaboration. You know, we get approached, we're working on another collaboration that's pretty large scale for next summer. And it's going to be musically involved and work with a lot of different musical artists. And I think there's been so many people who wanted that for a long time, but they just done it wrong. They're like, I want to go put my name on your week, right? And that no one gives a shit like they should, like, that's nothing exciting or special about it. But if you can find a way to make it unique, then that's how, you know, that's when things are cool. And that's when you remember them.
1: And very organic too, because I get asked that question a lot of people just like, because we do a lot of collaborations here locally in Austin, but it, it's a little bit, you know, it's come through my network. I'm never very pushy with these brands that we do collaborations with. Yeah. It's very organic, natural. They know what my business is. I know what they're doing. We're, you know, humans first and foremost. And people who are just like, oh, I got to get my CBD into the coffee shop because I got to, you know, all the other people who CBDs and all these other menus. And it's like, well, if you actually had intention and maybe did it, you know, the right way, you'd have more success with doing it. So I think there's a right way to approach collaborations and they obviously can be very fruitful for both brands involved it sounds like Icelandic has a lot of success with this collaboration so they're obviously more inclined to like want to carry it in their stores and want to keep saying yes to you guys so when it makes sense it you know makes sense
0: one it's also identifying the right part There's yeah. who make great skis who would not want to put up with all of our shenanigans right and there's people who appreciate it right and so I think that's it's really important it's like any other relationship interview your partner and know and be honest you know one thing we do a really good job of is we are completely honest about our intentions on everything we do. And I think a lot of people, because we're cannabis, get nervous early and like, oh, they're not going to want to work with us. I think they need to know. And if they don't want to work with you, it's better to know it before you start than to get involved and have an expectation of something and be disappointed, you know?
1: Absolutely. No, I think it's important. Absolutely. Because you want the intention to be clear on both sides and you want both people to come to the table with the same excitement and the same creativity and the same opportunity. And when someone's very rigid or doesn't think the same way. It obviously it can show in the outcome of that collaboration. Sure. So you mentioned experiential events in a couple of different, you know, touch points in this conversation. I want to circle back around to it because when I was at your office, you had just got a brand new display and a little kiosk that you were taking to events. I know that a lot of brands do pop-ups at dispensaries, but it sounds like you guys also do pop-ups at other events. So when you say experiential marketing, what does that actually look like for you and your team? And why is experiential marketing so important?
0: I think, well, I, I'm going to answer in reverse order. I think experiential marketing for a brand is so important because you know, you, you alluded to it. I don't get to talk to our customers. No one on my team gets to talk to the customers. They talk to a dispensary that we sell to, right? So these these marketing opportunities are ways that we can actually interact with the customer and humanize the brand. You know, one thing I, I think going back to my example of the, the beer scene and growing up in Colorado and I'll date myself, I was in college in, in the late 90s, early 2000s in Colorado when these beer brands that are now national, you know, Fat Tire was, was just a few dudes with an idea, right? And that was, I thought it was so cool how people who were doing amazing things were out and you could interact with them and you could talk to them and understand what they were doing. You go meet Dale and what's so special about your pale ale? And I think getting out into events that consumers are at anyway and not being pushy and not being salesy and not trying to make them give you your email address or any of this other kind of bullshit and just meeting them, just like doing something fun for them we got a phenomenal, I mean, our director of experience is insane. She does a really, really good job. She's incredibly organized. And she gets the idea that, you know, for an event to be successful, people have to leave with that kind of like energy you get when you leave a concert, that fun kind of touch point. So we sponsor concerts, we sponsor neighborhood cleanups, we sponsor charity events. But And when we do these things, it's not just like, here's a check and a logo and make sure we're displayed properly. It's there getting involved and being part of it. We'll do this event. It's actually Icelandic as it throws the concert. They have a concert at Red Rocks in the winter time, and it's the only time Red Rocks is open in the winter. It's cold, it's snowy. You know, it's Denver in January, and it's this great show, and it's always super high energy, and people are really excited to get out. This one time, we will run a bus from the bottom of Red Rock, from where the parking lots are, to the top of Red Rocks, and inside the bus, there'll be samples if they want. You know, I brought some weed. If you want to try something, you can try something. And if you don't, that's cool too. Like we're not trying to, like it's just an opportunity to get something provided they needed, a warm ride to the top, but to do that and to interact with the people who were part of the brand. You know, we do a ton of stuff with art. We work with so many different art galleries and that means all kinds of things. That could mean that we're sponsoring a green room and make sure the artists take care of. It could mean that we're paying for some art that's going to be hung somewhere. It could mean that we did a, My favorite experiential thing or one of the very coolest ones we did, we did a puff pass and paint. So we had a very cool local artist who everyone was a fan of and we brought her in and we did a giveaway and I think we had 40 different people show up and then it was like fully cater, you know, there was a ton of hash, there's a lot of weed and you got to make a painting with a famous artist teaching you how to make her pineapple. Like it was such a cool experience. People who saw that, they won't forget it. I'd rather do that and take 40 people and just turn them into fans and really kind of connect with them than just throw our name on something and have, you know, 10,000 people see a logo that doesn't really mean much to me. So, you know, experiential marketing for us is the key. And I think it was something we had to do because when we started Colorado's advertising rules were so strict that we couldn't do most of the traditional things. Like, and I don't think we would have gone that road, but I love that we don't have to buy billboards or we don't buy billboards. And, you know, we very rarely run an advertisement and because, we have such a well-curated email list and we have such a well-curated different vehicles and we've got people who understand that if we're going to throw a butt party, you know, our butt party, the list sells out in no time, right? We, it's because that experience we deliver on and it comes down to having the right people to do it and, and also having a brand willing to invest in it, you know, but I invest in it because to me, that's, it's a very measurable form of marketing. I can do an event and I can measure the impact of that around it have any idea how many people drive past the billboard and end up buying something because they saw it on a billboard you know not to knock on billboards but it's just for me that's just where brands are made you know nike wasn't made because they had a campaign on tv Nike was made because they were out giving free shoes to athletes and the athletes loved them and then that grew into relationships with huge athletes that were able to shine attention on it and it was never about just like okay i gotta check a box i gotta do a collaboration these guys want a collaboration what do i got it was this runner's amazing I love to have my shoes on his feet when he's running, you know, and the, the Phil Knight book, he talks about that. You know, and it's like, that's how you build a brand. And we didn't do that because that's what Phil Knight did. But I think that the lesson is the same thing. Like, it's like, find what makes you tick. Find what's authentic to you. You know, we're about quality. We love outdoor stuff. We love music and focus in that world and be impactful in that world. Cause that's a big enough world as it is that you don't need to do everything.
1: Yeah, your director of experiences sounds like she has a really badass job and opportunity to do creative marketing activities in a way that is really meaningful to your brand and ultimately to the consumers that help build your brand up. So kind of on that note, final question, when I was there, I noticed the great office environment that you had. It is very non-traditional. So I'll kind of leave that for you to address in how much disclosure you want to. I don't really want to, like, want to call it out or anything. My, i mean, curious how you run an office like that and also just maybe to put some parameters on, on your marketing team in particular to execute this. You know, like you mentioned you have all these different positions. Like how, how does that work to execute the Veritas brand?
0: So the office environment you're speaking about, when we initially had an office that's what you'd expect from a weed company. Did I tell you the story? I don't want to bore you with the same story. No,
1: please repeat it. Because I think the listeners will get a kick for it. But I think you did tell for me. That's why <laughs> I'm remembering.
0: You had the office that, that you would expect from a weed company. It was like a bombed out, old, disgusting looking carpet. Should have been changed 10 years ago. The business across the hall from us did urine tests for CDLs. Like nothing wrong with that, but not the classiest place in Denver, right? We would continually have complaints because if you walk through our garden, you're going to smell like weed and it's going to happen pretty frequently. And the landlord would call at least once a week with a complaint about the weed smell. And I kind of got to a spot where like, you know, this is what we do. We're proud of it. We're not being jerks. We're not doing anything we shouldn't do, but this is a continual problem. So I reached out to a buddy of mine who does commercial real estate and it was during COVID and there were no offices. Nobody was taking an office. People were getting rid of offices. But COVID for us represented a period of pretty significant expansion. And so we were able to find this amazing, beautiful facility. that was way nicer than what we thought. I mean, I've got a concrete floor. This is a garage door behind me. So I can open my garage door and have the outside here. And it was really important to us that we wanted to have somewhere we could have product. If you came and visited, I want to be able to give you a sample. I want to build a roll joint with you and smoke one if we want to do that. And so that evolved into a policy where we said, look, people here, everyone who's a part of this company is passionate about the plant. They consume it. They enjoy it. They're involved for different reasons. But one thing that's unifying you know, is that everybody's connected to the plan. And we said, look, we think this is a part of normal life. We think this is becoming more normal. And we think that there's some of us, myself included. If I have to sit down and do a really thick budget spreadsheet, I'll smoke a joint first or I'll smoke a joint during because it allows me to kind of quiet all the other noise and to focus on what's in front of me. And so we said, look, as long as the work is getting done, I'm not going to tell you to stop smoking. I mean, you can consume as much as you want, but the work's got to get done. And that's just kind of the, Responsibility, it's on everybody is that at some point, if it's not happening, you will be told you can. But if you can, and this is something that, that makes you happy, and this is something that provides texture to your life, and this is something that provides an extra level of fulfillment that, or enjoyment, why not? I mean, we have the marketing team here. They do a lot of creative stuff. I know I'm more creative when I've had a couple of joints. And so it's funny, like as it turned out just truly, we wanted to have somewhere we can be proud of our product and somewhere we could share. And it's evolved into I think a really great competitive advantage for us. I can't imagine, you know, if someone was to be interviewing somewhere else, I'm sure they would ask, is it okay if I get high at work? And also from a quality control perspective, you know, we're interacting with our product frequently. So it's great. It's funny, like everybody comes in, they see this office, they're a little bit, wow. But again, when you, it's hard to argue with the results. You know, we, as of right now, are on the top shelf of 34% of the stores in the state of Colorado that, Next closest brand, not even copper bottom shelf is on 14%. So, you know, you can't argue with the results. And if it's helping people to be centered or if it's helping people just enjoy a Tuesday and to not have to, yeah, I never wanted the office to be somewhere to be like, oh, fuck, I got to go to work. You got to be here. You might as well make it somewhere you want to be.
1: Yeah, I just thought it was so, I guess, remarkable and I was envious of your environment because it is non-traditional and I can only hope that it becomes more traditional as cannabis continues to be more adopted, especially from cannabis businesses. Like I don't expect, you know, my tech company to be like, yeah, it's cool to smoke pot at work, but Yeah, exactly. Maybe not your doctor, but for, like you said, you are hiring people who are passionate about your business, about the plants, you know, they're probably consuming before, you know, after hours, things like that. Why not enable them and kind of have some sort of trust environment too, to empower them to consume and to obviously, you know, do great work for the company. And it shows that it's doing what it's intended to do. So the product is good. They like what they're experiencing and And that's all you can ask for. So I was just curious to inquire about that just for people, obviously it's not explicitly marketing, but business related where we are looking at cannabis from so many different facets in the industry. And so I think one being, how do you shape the hiring process? How do you shape the, you know, employee-employer relationship? What are perks on the job for people who are, and you're talking about, you know, teenagers who are only experiencing buying legal weed they're people who are growing up and hitting 21 where their only experience is legal opportunities to find cannabis how is that going to impact the workplace when people are like oh cannabis is so normalized you mean i get drug tests at work like why the hell would i get drug tests at work and the ripple affects them all those things so that's i was just curious because no,
0: it, i think it's important i mean our strongest accomplishment last year and I, I have the magazine hanging on my wall we were named one of the top companies cannabis companies we work for in the country and I don't think it's because we let people smoke weed I think it's because we actually care about making people happy and we want to provide the environment that does that and I think that's a component of it and to your point you know this is a tough time to be hiring people right it's a challenging world so if there's something that is on brand and central and, and to who we are then we can legally do it why not do it and make it a better environment. I joke with people, I'm inherently lazy. I don't ever want to replace anybody. I want to just develop people and keep bringing them along and make them happy. And, and that's, you know, I think caring about what's important to them goes the a long ways in that world. Love
1: this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at Tarabi.